Bienvenidos and welcome to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. In tonight's program, we interview Brazilian journalist Diogo Antonio Rodriguez about the political unrest in Brazil. He'll tell us about the latest response of Brazilians to the potential impeachment of Brazilian President Dilma Rousseff. We'll also interview Claudia Bernardi about Walls of Hope, an international community-based arts and human rights project that uses murals to preserve historic memory. And finally, we'll tell our listeners about the latest exciting musical shows and artists coming to the Bay Area. So make sure to stay tuned. All this y mucho más. I'm your host, Vanessa Bohm, for La Raza Chronicles. We turn first in tonight's program to Brazil. The South American nation has been experiencing significant political unrest as a result of corruption scandals and attacks on the head of the government, President Dilma Rousseff, and her party, the Workers' Party. Most recently, the country's lower house voted to approve her impeachment, which will now go to Congress for the deciding vote. Joining us to talk about this recent event and what it means for the nation is Brazilian journalist Diogo Antonio Rodriguez, who joins us from Sao Paulo, Brazil. Thanks for speaking with us again, Diogo. You're welcome. It's a pleasure to talk to you again. Well, I know that you were on our program not too long ago to give us some background on what is happening in Brazil. As I mentioned just now, the lower house has voted in favor of impeaching President Rousseff. Can you tell us what this means for Dilma and her government? Well, this is the first step for the impeachment process to actually start in Brazilian Congress. The lower house has approved it on Sunday, like you said, and now the Senate will form a commission to decide if it's going to approve this process into the Senate or not. If the commission approves it, then the next step is a vote by all senators on the floor, just like what happened with the lower house. And from the moment the commission accepts the process, which will be something like license from the president and the Senate will have 180 days to vote the impeachment and decide. If they do not decide in 180 days, then President Rousseff just gets back at being president and the process is terminated. But if they do vote, they do approve it, two-thirds of all the senators then President Rousseff is uh, impeached, and Vice President Michel Temer will become president of Brazil. And Dilma Rousseff has not actually been charged with a crime. On what basis, then, can she be impeached? It's important to know that the Brazilian impeachment process is called a juridical political process because it has to have a judiciary charge, but the process is judged only by the Congress. So uh, it has to have a legal basis. But who judges are the politicians. So that's a very complicated thing for any politician to go through. And it's true. President Rousseff has not been charged with what we call here crimes of responsibility, which are crimes that uh, they are uh, typified in our Constitution. As uh, I can give you some examples, like threatening the existence of the union, conspiring to end the political system and others. But the important thing about this process is that she's being charged with violating the fiscal responsibility law, which she has not done. As a matter of fact, many law experts say that she has not broken the the fiscal law. It's a very complicated process, but uh, in a nutshell, they're accusing her of 
borrowing money from public banks, which is forbidden by law. But she has not done so because she has not done any kind of contract to borrow money from those banks. So that's a very thin line that is separating President Rousseff from being president. It's a crime that hasn't happened. Many people agree with that. And that's why you're hearing about this as a coup d'etat, because the opposition is using this process, which is, of course, uh, in our Constitution, is a legitimate uh, process that you can uh, initiate to remove someone from office if they have committed a crime. But they are beginning to remove President Rousseff because of a fiscal uh, small print, something that is not a crime per se. So that's the criticism about this process. And I know you mentioned that there was a significant force of Brazilians who are in favor of impeaching Rousseff. However, there's also a great deal of Brazilians who support her and the Workers' Party. What has been the response of Brazilians down on the ground since the vote was taken to impeach her? Yes, that's true. Um, Although we have seen many protests from the people who want to take her out of the office, she has been elected 54 million elections in 2014. So she has a great popular legitimacy. She is a very popular president, although not lately, but because of all the economical problems we're facing. Well, the vote that happened on the 17th was a shocking moment for the whole country, even for people who are uh, pro-impeachment because you could see that congressmen and women who voted were not voting, were not mentioning the reasons that were on the impeachment process, the fiscal reasons. They were invoking all kinds of reasons to vote for the impeachment, uh, religion, phone um, families, and uh, what they call the communist doctrination. Like, like in the U.S., some people are calling President Obama a communist. Here is the same thing. They have a very pro-social government here in Brazil, and some people see that as socialism or communism. So the vote was very shocking. One particular Congress, uh, Congressman Jair Bolsonaro, dedicated the vote to a torturer during the Brazilian dictatorship, Colonel Brilhante Ustra. He tortured President Rousseff when she was in prison. She was... Uh, incarcerated for three and a half years, and she was tortured during that time. Not only is he dedicated uh, voting for the impeachment to the former military torturer, but he said that he was President Rousseff's terror, someone she feared. So it was a very, very personal attack, and he invoked some very dark, undemocratic forces in Brazil, which are coming out of the closet right now because some people just want the, the Workers' Party to disappear and, um, you know, we're seeing him arise on the fascist speech, the hatred speech, and uh, pro-government population is not silent now because it was very clear what happened on the vote on the 17th, and people were very shocked. And some people that were moderate, maybe they were pro-impeachment, but they don't hate the government that much. They were kind of shocked, and now they're thinking if the impeachment is a good idea indeed. Leaving the country in the hands of those people is going to be a good idea because there's a lot of things that are at stake now, like the workers' rights, tax law, and a whole series of things that can be changed once Michelle Temer takes office if the impeachment process goes through. Dilma Rousseff herself stated to the British Guardian that she was a victim of a plot, a political coup that is being driven by the media and the political opposition. As you had mentioned and many others have mentioned, some political figures of the opposition have been guilty of more serious crimes, but that the judiciary has not taken actions against them. What is your take on this and how likely is it that the opposition will succeed to bring uh, Rousseff down and her government? 
Well, right now, uh, if you look at things as they are right now, it seems very likely that President Rousseff will be impeached because the opposition doesn't want to lose this moment, take the power away from PT, and to, you know, implement a neoliberal program that they've been craving since Lula's last election in uh, 2006. The political game here in Brazil has been changing very rapidly, so it's hard to say what's going to happen uh, when the Senate puts the impeachment bill to a vote. The political and social movements in Brazil have woken up, and they're taking it to the streets every day, and they're making major demonstrations in cities like São Paulo, like Rio, and other capitals in Brazil. And it is uh, fair to, to imagine that the pressure on the opposition is going to grow because there's many Brazilians are unhappy with this process, and they see it as an unfair accusation to President Rousseff, and they can see that the media is trying to manipulate public opinion in order to paint the PT government as corrupt and as the only corrupt government in the recent Brazilian history. So, yes, I think uh, there's going to be a political battle uh, in the next 15 days or a month. But um, as you mentioned, the people who are uh, conducting this process, especially the Speaker of the lower house, uh, Juan he is involved in many crimes, and he's being investigated by the federal police for taking bribe money from Petrobras, our state-owned oil company in Brazil. And he's already a defendant in the Supreme Court, where um, he's ready to be prosecuted He's been waiting for more than 150 days. We don't know why the Supreme Court won't put this forward. I don't, we don't know why he hasn't been prosecuted yet and, and listened to and judged. But uh, do know uh, he's been involved in, in many corruption cases, and President Rousseff has been accused of that, and she hasn't been mentioned in a single investigation so far. So, uh, And other political leaders from the opposition are, have their own involvement as well. So it's, it's a very complicated scenario. Everything can change from now until the vote because we don't know what's going to happen in Lava Jato. We don't know what's going to happen with the investigations. And the social movements are getting stronger. I think they're going to put a lot of pressure on the opposition. Well, thank you so much, Diego Antonio Rodriguez, for joining us this evening and giving us some context and analysis about what's going on in Brazil. And we hope to have you on to talk about what's taking place in Brazil and keep us updated. Thank you. I'll be happy to speak to you again. You're listening to Crónicas La Raza, La Raza Chronicles. I'm Julieta Kuznir, and today we are very lucky to have in our studios Claudia Bernardi. She is an artist and part of Walls of Hope. She's also a professor here at CCA. Thank you so much, Claudia, for joining us. Gracias. Thank you. So, Claudia, the Walls of Hope is a really beautiful project that has taken on so many important issues and told so many important stories through community support and through community involvement. Why don't you tell us the story of how Walls of Hope came to be? Uh, Walls of Hope is an art community project that takes place in El Salvador. Initially, it takes place in El Salvador. The project came about because something completely different to art. I was uh, part of the Argentine Forensic Anthropology team when the team was nominated by the United Nations 
to investigate the massacre at El Mozote, which is one of the many massacres that took place during the civil war in El Salvador. When the Argentine forensic anthropology team started working at El Mozote and they started finding what the only survivor of the massacre had said that probably we would find, which is a, a lot of children. My task was to create the archaeological maps that represent the findings of the human remains, the associated objects, and the ballistic evidences. So what we can say is that after three months of work, it was possible to say that at least in the building that we were working, which was chosen by the judge pertinent in the case, we found 143 human remains, of which 136 were of children under the age of 12. So for me, as someone who accompanied the Argentine forensic team in other exhumations, this one was unique and overwhelming in that the majority of the victims were very, very young. As the different months went on and we were finding more and more children, I kept on wondering, and this is 1992, the exhumation took place in 1992, I was left with the question what it would be like to come back to this place and work in art projects with children of the same age of the ones we are finding. And at the time, it appeared to be an impossible question with an impossible answer. But I remain thinking about that. And in the year 2005, I went back to Perkin, which is a community located four kilometers north from the massacre place of El Mosote, with the desire and with the hope of creating exactly what I had hoped, which is an art project. Now, when I first started thinking about it, it became clear to me that this could not be a Bernardi project, that it needed to be a community-based project. So the very first instances in which we gather with the community, with the local politicians of the community, which was compromising because the war had just ended. And, you know, everyone knew what side of the war everyone was. So, you know, there were many, many aspects of the very first stages of the project of Walls of Hope that were hugely challenging. And I didn't know about that, actually. I did not know how to navigate that. I just had trust that the only thing I could do was art, and I was about to ask the community if they were willing to do that. And to my mm, relief and also celebration, I suppose, everyone, ones and the others, the right, the left, the people who had been part of the military, the ones who had been part of the FMLN, they all seemed to be willing to embark in this new possibility. So the school started in 2005. And yes, Walls of Hope is the way in which it's been known in the United States. In El Salvador, it's called Escuela de Arte y Taller Abierto de Perkin, School of Art and Open Studio of Perkin. And that is important in that 
the school could not be like the California College for the Arts where I teach. You know, it needed to have a comprehension of who were going to be the people taking the classes. So we needed to respect the rainy season, the dry season, whether or not there was vehicles to bring the people. I mean, there were so many aspects that were collateral to the creation of the school that if we would have not had uh, contemplated, the school would have not really started or continue. Another big part of the school for me from the very beginning is that in order to make it a community project, this needed to be eventually in the hands of local people. And that exactly did happen. The school is today in the hands of three wonderful artists and teachers, America Argentina Vaquerano Romero, Claudia Berenice Flores Escolero, and Rosa del Carmen Argueta. These three fantastic women, artists, thinkers, community organizers, came to the school first as wanting to learn from the workshops, and then they became apprentices, and eventually the school is in their hands. We work together, we travel together, we, thanks to, to Skype, we are in constant communication, but the school is in their hands. And, and I consider that to be the biggest success of the project, actually. I have in the studio with me Claudia Bernardi. She, along with being a professor at CCA, California College of the Arts, she is also part of the Walls of Hope project, or as she explained. So as you mentioned, your projects have very much been connected to supporting people who have survived and communities that have survived state-sponsored terror. So a big part of your work has manifested and served many different communities. So you've worked with people that have experienced this type of oppression and resisted this type of oppression in many different ways. Why do you tell us about some of the other projects Walls of Hope has taken on to support people telling their story through art? From the most recent projects, one took place in Argentina, in Buenos Aires, Argentina. This was a project that evolved out of the reality of what happened in Argentina during the Milite Junta. So this project was to work with families of people who disappeared, but who also were able to recover the human remains of their loved ones, thanks to the efforts of the Argentine Forensic Anthropology Team. When one talks about the disappear of, of Argentina, we are talking about 30,000 people, plus minus. So consequently, there are many, many, many family members. There is a much smaller group of families and relatives that correspond to families who were able to retrieve the human remains that were firstly exhumed by the Argentine forensic team, and then through DNA testing, the human remains were able to be identified as part of the family. So we initiated this project in January of 2014. It was very delicate. It was created with the understanding that if the families would feel uncomfortable, the project would not take place at all. But to our surprise, when we started reaching the families, they all said yes right away. They Yes, they thought it was a good idea. We had a first meeting in the Argentine Forensic Team's headquarters office in Buenos Aires, 
And at that time, the question was, and where will this mural be? We were finding the possibility of creating the mural in the largest clandestine center of detention and extermination of Argentina, which is the place that is called today Ex-ESMA. ESMA is, stands for Escuela Superior de Mecánica de la Armada, the Mechanical Navy School. Over 5,000 people were taken to ESMA. Very few survive. The rest are disappeared, presumably assassinated. What was fantastic from the point of view of the art project is how the family members were able to embrace the possibility. There were over 50 people working together in collaboration, which is how we always work. All projects are collaborative. And um, another part, which, of course, I didn't have anything to do with that, but it's part of how the project evolved. We had many generations. We had the generations of the disappeared were the ones that were not there. But we had mothers of the disappeared. We had siblings of the disappeared, sons and daughters of the disappeared, and the grandchildren of the disappeared. So we had like, four different generations painting together in the ex-ESMA. That was an amazing project. That's voice of Claudia Bernardi. We're talking about Walls of Hope and their recent work in Argentina, working with survivors of state terror and documenting what happened and how the community was impacted. Claudia, we've been talking about things that have, have happened far away. You've also worked with groups here in the United States. You've worked with unaccompanied minors. You've worked with young people coming here from Central America who are escaping terror themselves, much of which has been supported by U.S. intervention in their countries. Can you tell us how Walls of Hope has worked with unaccompanied minors and and some of the young people that are being held in detention centers here in California? Mm-hmm. Yes. Before I talk about that project, just to understand the dynamics of the many journeys that the unaccompanied minors take, I would like to mention that we also worked in Ciudad Juarez, Mexico, with youth affected by the effects of violence. Those are the minors that may or may not decide to leave Ciudad Juarez because of violence. Ciudad Juarez, as you probably know, It's only 20 minutes away from El Paso, Texas. Now, in this case, the kids were from Ciudad Juarez. They were not coming from anywhere else. Yet they were very concerned about their safety. That's what the mural talks about. The mural talks about how they saw their future very limited. In the year 2014 and 2015, we work with unaccompanied, undocumented Central American minors that are currently detained in the United States. These are the young men and women who, for many reasons, including poverty and violence in El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala, Mexico, are leaving their countries. They are crossing one country and the other, one desert and the other, they find themselves at the very border, the U.S.-Mexico border. And many, many times they are also affected by the presence of narcotraffic, which is now located in that particular geographic section. So how 
the youth tells the story is that many times narco-traffic kidnaps them or stops them and they request more money to allow them to go through. And if the money is not being produced, which is the majority of the cases because the kids come from very poor backgrounds, then they are obliged to become part of the narco-traffic action here. So most frequently women are, young women are victims of sexual violence, sexual trafficking. Males are being obliged to be involved or sometimes commit very serious crimes. This is something that it's taking an enormous logarithmic tension, I would say, because it does not seem to decrease, it seems to increase. So with this population is where we created two different murals in 2014 and 2015. The mural theme of the first mural was La Bestia, the beast, which is the train that most of them take from the very south of Mexico all the way to the north, very frequently ending in Ciudad Juárez or Nogales or somewhere close to the border. Colleagues from El Salvador and I do not touch the mural. We do not work on the mural. Our role is assisting or facilitating their work. So our role is to make very good questions, to ask questions that will allow them to identify what it is important for them and try to find through consensus a theme that later will become the composition of the piece, if you were to look at this from the point of view of art. But we do not suggest anything. We do not force any idea. We basically ask in all circumstances, what is what the mural will say? What is what you want to say? Who is going to see this mural? What would you like to tell people about your journey, your situation, what you're interested in. So when we asked the question in 2014, we were astonished because everyone, almost simultaneously, as if they had been waiting for this to be asked, said, La Bestia. And that is the theme. It's a long, long train that occupies two big pieces of canvas. The mural was painted on canvas to allow it to travel. And each window tells the story of some of the kids. And they are heartbreaking and very important to learn from their perspective. The second year that we work in in this detention center, the mural was bigger in size. It was painted by more participants. And the mural was called, and it is called, The Tree of Life. The centerpiece of the mural is a beautiful tree that is putting almost reality in an equidistant location from how the kids cross the border, the very extreme left. One learns about the crossing of the river with you know the big tires, the people that get drowned, the ones that don't make it, then ev- evolves into how they get involved in narco-traffic, what narco-traffic obliges them to do, how they escape narco-traffic or how they try to get into the United States despite all these many obstacles. And when they come to the United States, if they manage, 
they are at crossroads, as they put it, because freedom is not what they are going to get. They suddenly find themselves within the criminal justice system of the United States without really comprehending what exactly that means or for how long. And then the mural evolves into this beautiful tree because they still feel that they have the right for a better life. And it continues to evolve. It's very long into the journey of trying to find families, their families, in the United States because many of these youth have families in the United States. Uh, Some of them know where they are. Some of them do not know where they are, but they know that they are, for instance, in Maryland or somewhere in Long Island. You know, they have heard that, but they don't know the specifics. The outside border of the mural It's divided in small paintings, if you wish, vignettes that tell very clear stories of violence that the youth encounter. So the mural, the way I see it and the way it is being seen, actually, is as a broadcasting from the perspective of the youth. What I think is very powerful about that is that, you know, if you're interested And if you're not interested, perhaps you should be interested about all these kids crossing the border. We read the numbers. We read statistics. We read 57,000 minors crossed the border last year. That in itself is heartbreaking. But they are numbers. I fear that it is not enough to comprehend the calamity that this really implies. But I think the mural, because... It is painted by the participants of this story. You cannot really forget. And that is something that, of course, we were not able to predict or, you know, that was not the reason for which the mural was created. But it is what is happening. And we are taking the opportunity to use the mural as a way to tell the story of the youth in in a detention center. That's the voice of Claudia Bernardi. So much of your murals depicts these very difficult crisis situations, these points where the state or these points where power differentials were really, really huge. It seems like these murals, along with telling these very, very, very dark stories, as you mentioned, they still have a lot of hope and a lot of resilience. So tell us about the process for the people who participate. It seems like people who are part of these process and feel ownership of, in telling their story, and there's a lot of positive consequences. We often hear about the negative consequences of things like detention centers or of state-sponsored violence or of military dictatorships. We hear about the negative tolls these things have for generations to come, the inherited trauma we have in us all, but we don't hear enough about the resilience and the power that people have that have survived. Tell us about how that comes through in this work. Most of the community projects and collaborative art projects that we have created have been created by people who are the survivors or families of people who did not survive and who have a lot of stories to tell. So when the possibility is presented to them about having this opportunity to tell their stories, two things always happen. One is that they feel timid about painting because most of the times 
or all the times they have never done it. And the second is that they feel committed to tell the story. So from our point of view, the, the first part is happens always in the same format, that you know the way we start the project is by asking them to make drawings, just drawings, you know, not, 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 to, pre, not to get preoccupied about the painting or anything. We're going to get that later. And already in the process of drawing, in response to your question, what is the hope, is that always happens that people do remember the same or very similarly what has happened. And that is already the beginning of a transformation because suddenly they realize that maybe this is very personal, like, you know, projects that we conducted in Guatemala with indigenous women who were survivors of sexual violence during the armed conflict. These women had never spoken, not even to their daughters, and yet they were drawing together. They were speaking five different languages. They didn't understand each other. They needed interpreters as much as we needed interpreters. But the drawings were telling, the stories were similar, and that is already a moment in which the participants find that whatever they have gone through is not a solitary journey. The way we always work is trying to find consensus. So when the drawings are being created and there is a recurrency of subjects, we suggest that small groups would be created when the people have the similar memories to work together and to advance, to to go from what they had found that they have together to something larger. And this is how we create the theme of the mural. So from the beginning, the mural is a very elastic, new way of telling the story. And in that, I think, uh, is the the start of, of a very, yes, I would say transformative, collaborative process, but also understanding that what we are creating together is a bridge, not only between our stories in the mural, but how the mural will eventually tell the story to others. When it comes to the painting part, we try to do it very unintimidating. We create fields of colors at first, very thin. We call it el caldito, the the thin broth, and we paint with sponges. So there's no way in which you can mess it up because it's just beautiful color. And that is already another way to look at a a hopeful way to see the mural because very frequently it does happen that when people draw together, tell the stories, it's very emotional, very sad. But at the time we are painting, we are having a great time. And everyone enjoys that. And then a remarkable reality for all the projects that I have been involved in, that we have been involved in, it's nothing short from a miracle to have more than 50 people together who have never done art and who do create a project that is so beautiful. So that that's a, another moment of hope when they see their work. And, and also from the mural production, it's not a good idea to be always so close to the mural. So I always say, please take a stand back. Please take a stand back. And no one pays any attention. But at some point, the mural is becoming. And when finally they do take that step back and they see what they have done, 
it is an incredible moment. Many, many times we cannot stop being very moved and cry because it's just spectacular what has happened. And then how we all become part of the mural. And each mural brings evocations of other circumstances. I think one of the preoccupations I had before starting the project in Argentina, because I am from Argentina, is that I was working with more than 50 Argentines that by definition are intransigent. You know, we are not people who get along that well all the time. But this project proved otherwise. We know we will become different people. We are not the same people when we start than when we finish. It takes time. Uh, and I think working in these collaborative projects demands that we trust one another because we are all working together and because the way we work, there's no ownership. You know, very frequently I say, if you have been painting for 20 minutes or half an hour in one place, try to move to another place. So in that way, there's a fluidity among people. There are not people who paint backgrounds and people who paint trees and people who paint people. They all paint everything. And that becomes part of the uh, fluidity of the project, which I think is part of the hope. I'm speaking with Claudia Bernardi. We're talking about Walls of Hope and its many projects all over to having community folks tell their stories, people who have been marginalized, people who have been pushed into the shadows and addressing historical silence around immigration, around state violence, around so many issues. So Claudia, how do people connect to Walls of Hope and also how can they see some of this work? Well, we have a web page, which is www.wallsofhope.org. You see a lot of beautiful images and, as you said, the descriptions or reports of previous projects. There is also a Facebook address, which I don't know by heart because I don't have Facebook, but the Salvadorian artists do. So that's another way to get in touch. Actually, it seems to me that they are a lot more agile through Facebook these days, that more people, most people use that. So that, those are two very good ways to get in touch with Walls of Hope. Economic support, if, you, if we are working with indigenous communities in Guatemala, we never say no to a project for lack of funding. Uh, what we try to eliminate is to put money on top, but sometimes that happens. Uh, our works are generated in adjacency to the world of art, but it doesn't, it's not being born from the world of art. It's being born in the world of human rights. And very frequently, the agencies that invite us to work don't have the means to support hardly anything of the project. So we try to create ways in which we generate co collaborations with other artists, agencies, etc. But um, if someone feels um, compelled to support us, please do. So Cla Claudia, you also do this work at CCA. Can you tell us about that? Uh, at the California College of the Arts, I am a professor of um, a program called Community Arts. What I try to share with the young artists is the thought or the idea 
that to be an artist needs not to occur exclusively in the studio. It also needs not to be either or. But for artists who are interested in in you know seeing how art can be this bridge of connections between people, I am committed to uh, share with the students these strategies. There, there are ways to do it. There are ways in which one builds community, why it works, what one should do. Uh, how to create a long-term partnership with communities. So that's my job at CCA, and I really love it. And I have wonderful students who do great work in the world. Claudia Bernardi, it's been wonderful to have you here in our studio to talk about your work at California College of the Arts as well as your work with Walls of Hope. Muchísimas gracias por estar con nosotros. Gracias, Julieta. Un placer estar aquí. You're listening to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. I have on the line with me Elsa from Elsa y el Mar. She is going to be playing a very special show here in the Bay. She's going to be playing with Jepe. It's going to be a very fun show. And people just heard some of Elsa's music. First off, Elsa, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. It's amazing to be here with you. So Elsa, tell us about the song that our listeners just heard. Well, you just heard Cambiar, which is a collaboration with a Mexican artist called Caloncho. Those are very fun songs, and the interesting thing goes, they didn't exist. They appeared in the middle of the recording process. So I believe that they carry a lot of the of the California vibe that I got once I moved to the Bay Area. So Elsa, your music has a lot of different influences and has a lot of different energies. So I know that they just got a taste, but um, what kind of songs will they get a chance to hear at your sh upcoming show? Most of the songs are from Rey, the new album. They're very different one from another. So you, you're going to hear very mellow songs like Payaso, and then you're going to hear very rock like Animales Distintos and suddenly something very acoustic like Ropa Loca. So I believe that this album gives me the opportunity to have a very eclectic show and to have a show that's very like a wave, you know, very different. And you will never get some of the same. Yes, thank you. And so people can enjoy your energy, fun, light, beautiful sound, and also enjoy Pepe, another wonderful performer as well at your upcoming show. So we hope... This is one of many Bay Area performances. And is there anything else you'd like to tell our listeners that are hearing you and excited about the upcoming show? Well, I'm just excited. This is going to be our first official show in the Bay Area. We've played a lot outside, but this is the first one here. So I'm really, really happy and excited to share the music with the people that live where I live. And I think it's going to be fun. and People are going to relate with that feeling of, love that that in a way it makes us all feel connected and i'm excited to show people the the genres and the kind of music that i make 
and to see how they respond to it. I'm really, really excited. That's the voice of Elsa from Elsa y el Mar. She is going to be playing next week. She's going to be in concert on Sunday, May 1st at 9.30 p.m. She's going to be playing at the Brick and Mortar in San Francisco, and she'll be playing with Jepe as well as DJ Juan Data. Thank you so much, Elsa, for joining us. Thank you for inviting me, and um, see you next week. Yes, thank you. Llevo tiempo queriendo, queriendo hacerlo y tiempo pensando, porque no debo tiempo sintiendo. Yo llevo tiempo sintiendo, llevo tiempo planeando, cómo decirlo y tiempo tratando de resistirlo y tiempo queriendo. Yo llevo tiempo queriendo, y llevo tiempo soñando. Folks, you're listening to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. I'm Julieta Cusnid, and we have in the studio with us Carlos Desidier. He is with La Bohemia Productions. He makes a lot of magic happen here in the Bay, and he brings us a lot of great folks from far and wide. This time, it's a group that, a couple folks that have a lot of international claim and are very loved all over the world, but hail from the El Cono Sur. Um, we're talking about Jepe, as well as Elsa y El Mar, who is originally from Mexico, but is now here in the Bay. Carlos, thank you much so much for joining us. Hello, hello. Uh, thank you so much for having me here, and hello to all the listeners. So, Carlos, you bring a whole big range of folks, and there's often a thread that ties everyone together. Let's first talk about the show happening next Sunday. So, the show happening on Sunday, May 1st. This is a show with Jepe, as well as Elsa y el Mar, and DJ Juan Data, who we all know and love. 
First of all, tell us a little bit about the vibe. We just heard an interview with Elsa, so people got a feel for her music. Tell us a little bit about Jepe and what people can expect to feel and experience at this show. I think the whole, you know, talking about the vibe, the whole vibe of the show, it's interesting that you mentioned El Cono Sur because, yes, uh, even DJ Juan Data has a connection to El Cono Sur. So we're talking about uh, an artist that's uh, Chilean, El Sayel Mar, uh, Colombian, and then Juan Data from Argentina. So it'll, but of course, from the Bay Area. So it will be, I, I think it's a great show. It will be, I'm very excited about it because it's going to be very singer-songwriter-ish, but mixed with a lot of electronic pop, especially from the new generation of electronic artists and, and pop artists surfacing in South America. We're talking about Jepe, for example, that's very connected to a Chilean, I would say a, a, a boom of, of artists that are that are emerging, Javier Amena, Alex Unwanter, even Nano Stern in the more folky side, and uh, Camila Moreno also in the more folky indie side. So there are a lot of, of artists from Chile that are playing in major festivals. For example, Jepe just performed this weekend at the Vive Latino. And we're very excited to have him here. It's his first Bay Area show. So that makes it even more interesting. People are going to see a full band from Jepe, but very rhythmic. Jepe goes from bachata to electronic to some cumbias to uh, influences from the from the northern part of Chile, from Bolivia. So he really has a, a Latin American mix that people are going to expect to see uh, on stage. I know he's coming over with two dancers, so there's going to be a lot of dancing, a lot of movement. Then Elsa Elmar brings the more electronic pop sound, beautiful, soft lyrics. And, of course, in between we'll have DJ Juan Data with the best mixes of music to, to get us into the dance floor. And if people haven't heard Juan Data spinning, they're in for a treat. He kind of brings everything. So we're going to hear a little bit of Jepe because I'm enough talking. So let's take a listen to some of his music. Aparecer 
was just the music of Jepe. He will be here next Sunday, the May 1st, at the Brick and Mortar in San Francisco. So, Carlos, tell us a little bit more about that show, and then we're going to transition to another exciting show that is around the corner here happening in the Bay. Yeah, so I want to invite everyone. Remember, uh, Brick and Mortar, we have the, the late show. There's going to be two shows. So the show is actually at 9.30 at Brick and Mortar Music Hall on May 1st. Um, you have Elsa El Mar with self-electronic sounds. We're really excited to be working with her. She's now living in the Bay Area. So, you know, as a, as a local promoter, it's really great to have new artists with great sounds here in, in the Bay. We also have Jepe with a huge, wide a range of, of music and, and mixture and influences of music that you're going to get to see on stage, full band, dancers, and the whole thing. They're coming over from Vive Latino. And, of course, DJ Juan Data tying it all together. So I'm really excited about this show. So there's another show that I know you're really excited about that has a different feel, but that has going to have a lot of energy and a lot of people that are going to probably have had this on their calendars for quite a while. What I'm talking about is Mirulo is coming to town, and he's someone that is very loved here. So tell us about his music and tell us about this special show that's happening at the Mission Cultural Center. Yeah, so Mirulo is one of those, uh, what, you know, inside the La Buemia, we're calling one of the bucket list shows, you know, that we've had in our bucket list and we've wanted to do for such a long time. Mirulo is one of the founders of Neva Trova, so he's one of the legendary Cuban artists that came out of the, the political folk songs that... People like Silvio Rodriguez, Pablo Milanes, Noel Nicola, and others put forth and called uh, Nueva Trova. However, he was the only one that was extremely funny. So he is, uh, so imagine Silvio Rodriguez, but very funny, creating social criticism, political criticism, presenting social everyday situations in a very funny way, and not necessarily being either left or right, but just sur- kind of surfing the middle in a very funny, ironic way. So that's what people are going to get to see in that show. Very interesting lyrics, very funny lyrics. Uh, he has a new album, Cuba Si, Yankees Que. Uh, Cuba, yes, Yankees, what? Uh, and it's really, a, well, it's, it's kind of a play on words on, a, on an old political slogan, but it's also his new album talking about the new uh, U.S.-Cuba relations. Um, he, he lives in, in Mexico, so he has songs about the Chile Habanero, which, you know, has a reference to Havana, but in Havana, no, nobody eats Chile. La Torta Cubana, which is a, a very strange thing in Cuba because nobody eats it in, in Cuba. It's a Mexican dish. And things like El Mole, which is a very complex dish uh, from Mexico that he also has a song for. So he's really going to be talking about different different topics and themes in a very funny way. So so I know a lot of people are very excited about this show. They, they've known Virulo. They've been waiting for this show. And those of you who don't know Virulo, I definitely recommend the show. And tell us a little bit more about the details. Yeah, so it's going to be at the Mission Cultural Center in the Mission, Mission and 25th, on Saturday, May 7th at 7 p.m. So Mission Cultural Center, Saturday, May 7th at 7 p.m. You can get more information on Mission Cultural Center's website, which is missionculturalcenter.org. That's the voice of Carlos Decidier. He is part of La Bohemia Productions. You've seen their posters everywhere. You've seen gone to their great shows. And they're bringing music from far and wide here to the Bay and highlighting incredible singer-songwriters and fun, danceable Latin American and Latino artists. Muchísimas gracias por estar con nosotros, Carlos. Gracias. Gracias por tenerme acá.
You've been listening to Crónicas de la Raza, La Raza Chronicles on KPFA 94.1 FM, community-powered radio. Tonight's program was produced by Nina Serrano, Julieta Kuznir, Brenda Illescas, and Vanessa Bohm. If you'd like to hear this program again or share it with others, you can check us out on SoundCloud. Just search for La Raza Chronicles. And of course, make sure to like us on Facebook to receive regular updates on arts, music, culture, and politics desde el mundo latino. We also love to hear from our listeners, so make sure to email us at larazachronicles at kpfa.org. Stay tuned next Tuesday at 7 p.m. for more of La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. Hasta la próxima.